Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. It's our happy privilege now to open the Holy Scriptures together, and I invite you to join me in your Bibles, if you will, in Acts chapter 20. I want to read beginning in the 17th verse through verse 38. It's a lengthy portion that we'll read, but that's the only time that a preacher's speaking without error when he's reading from the perfect, infallible Word of God. Acts chapter 20, beginning in the 17th verse. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all, for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. The theme of this farewell address to the elders at Ephesus by the Apostle Paul is the care and commitment that a pastor should have as a guardian of the truth and the Lord's church. 
I want to make a couple of preliminary comments before we look at the sermon in its own right. First of all, this is the only sermon in the book of Acts that is delivered to the church or to disciples. The other sermons that are here are delivered in public to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. A number of the sermons that are recorded by Paul are delivered to others outside the church, but this one is delivered to the elders of the church at Ephesus. It's delivered to believers. And I want you to notice the elders are called by three names or three different terms in this passage. First, they're called elders in verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now, elder is a biblical designation for gospel ministers. You'll see it in the pastoral epistles. You'll see it in the Pauline epistles. Paul speaks to the church at Philippi with the elders and the deacons. And the word elder, of course, means older, but it speaks of maturity. And when it's used as a title for gospel ministers, it suggests the idea that a gospel minister should be someone who is mature in the faith. He's not a new convert. He's somebody who's experienced he's an elder in the church. The word for elders is presbyteros, from which we get our word Presbyterian. And so the Presbyterians like this passage in Acts chapter 20. <laughs> but the Baptists also like it because he describes the elders as shepherds or pastors in verse 28 when he says, feed the flock of God which is among you. That word feed is poimain, which is translated shepherd or pastor. So the elders are the pastors. And then they're also called in the 28th verse overseers, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseer. And we get the word bishop or episcopos from that. And the Episcopal Church likes this passage because preachers are called overseers or bishops. So the Presbyterians like it, the Baptists like it, and the Episcopal people like this passage. And it is a premier passage that speaks of the nature of pastoral ministry and the role that a pastor fills as a shepherd and a guardian of the Lord's church. What we see in this very personal address is the heart of Paul the pastor. Now, usually when we think of Paul, we think of him as the premier theologian in the New Testament church. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament epistles that lay out the doctrines that the church believes. He was a theologian par excellence. And we usually think of Paul as a theologian. Some people think of Paul as an evangelist because he planted churches in Asia Minor, in uh, the Mediterranean world. Paul was instrumental in the constitution of many New Testament churches in his day. He was an evangelist who went where men have not gone before and broke the ice and sowed gospel seed and planted churches. He was used by God to convert people to the faith. Paul the theologian, Paul the evangelist, but in this passage we see Paul the pastor. And it shows us again his pastor's heart. In fact, he's speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus and if you look in the 31st verse, you see that he had stayed in Ephesus for three years. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, 
I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, Paul usually didn't stay this long in a single location. He would stay a few months and then he would move on to another. He stayed in Corinth a year and a half, which was pretty lengthy for Paul. He stayed in Ephesus, though, for three years. And what we see in this parting shot, this farewell address, which is a very emotionally charged scene, as you no doubt noticed when he told them that they would see his face no more. He's bidding farewell to them. They began to weep and they fell on his neck. That means they embraced him. They kissed him with a holy kiss. And they sorrowed, most of all, it says, because of what he said, that they should see his face no more. You know, goodbyes are hard, especially when you love somebody. And the church at Ephesus loved Paul. And now he's bidding them farewell. And for some reason, he has a sense about him that their paths will never cross again. And he was right. For Paul never saw the Ephesians again. Now, we do know he wrote them a letter later in your New Testament. It's called Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. And we know the church existed even after Paul was beheaded by Nero in 68 AD on the Ostian Way outside the city of Rome when he died as a martyr. We know the church at Ephesus continued for in the book of Revelation, near the end of the first century, the Lord Jesus sends a message to John on Patmos Island to deliver to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. But the church at that time had a problem developing. The Lord said, you've left your first love. You remember that. The church at Ephesus is one of the premier churches in the New Testament. In fact, there's more material focused upon and surrounding the church at Ephesus than any other church, probably than the church at Jerusalem in the New Testament. In fact, Timothy was left as the pastor in Ephesus. First and second Timothy, when Paul wrote those pastoral epistles, Timothy was serving at the church at Ephesus. And when we think of these churches, my friends, it's important for us to think of them like Bethel Church. For these first century churches were comprised of real flesh and blood people like us. Men and women, boys and girls, old and young, rich and poor. People in every strata of social life. It was a church made up of real families, real individuals, and they loved Paul. And now he's telling the ministers of that church, we won't ever see each other again. It's an emotionally charged scene. And what he's about to describe in this farewell address is what pastoral faithfulness should look like in the church. Now, here's an experienced minister that established the church. He's been there for three years, serving them, laboring among them. Paul the pastor, and his heart is evident. His heart is on display. He doesn't see ministry merely as a job. He doesn't see pastoral labor merely as a career path, as a means to an end for his own personal retirement program. Paul was invested in the people of God. His heart was on the line. And I want you to notice in this picture of pastoral faithfulness, first he describes his own pastoral ministry to the Ephesians in verses 17 through 27. And what we see here is that Paul was himself an example of what leadership should look like. We talked recently in our series of messages on shepherding the flock 
about the fact that a pastor leads by example. He's to model the message that he proclaims. He's to take the initiative, just like a shepherd goes out before his flock and they follow him. They step where he has stepped. He knows the pasture lands that would serve them best and he leads them and they follow exemplary leadership. So a minister is given as an object lesson or a small-scale example, a microcosm of Christian living. God has been very merciful to his church in giving them pastors, according to his heart, shepherds, who would model the message. And you know, that's the area that I feel my greatest shortcomings. Sometimes I think about my pulpit efforts and I critique them, but you know, the most good that a minister will ever do in his life is not just in his Sunday morning sermons, but by living the life of Christian discipleship consistently as an example to God's people before them over a lengthy period of time. And I believe that when a pastor and a church are together for a lengthy period of time, they grow together. You know, I've been to churches where pastors have been there for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and the church has taken on the personality of the pastor. That's a strange dynamic to me. I can see it. I can see that they catch his vision. Just like Nehemiah shared his vision for the rebuilding of the walls, and he was able to get some folks on board who caught the vision, and they began to think like he thought. That's the kind of dynamic that a pastor flock relationship gives us the opportunity to experience. Well, Paul was at Ephesus not 10 or 15 years, only three years, but still it was long enough for their hearts to be knit to his and his to them. You know, in the 35th verse, he says, I have showed you all things. Notice that word showed. You see it also in the 20th verse. I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you. It's not enough just to teach the people. We need to show the people. Show and tell. And God has given, again, pastoral ministry as a microcosm of the Christian life, a small-scale example, so that people can not only hear the truth, but they can see what it looks like to be totally devoted to Christ in the face of the many challenges we have in this world. I hope when you look at me, you see a hint of that. I have, again, much land to possess. I have a long ways to go to be consistent about it. But I hope you can see something sincere. hope you can see integrity. I hope you can see a genuine love for the Lord and desire to trust Him and to follow Him and to devote my life to serving Him. And that's what God requires of all of His people, not just the preachers. You know, this old dichotomy between the clergy and the laity that was popularized in Roman Catholicism, you know, that the clerics are the truly spiritual ones and the people are to just keep their rules and regulations, but the clergy is closest to God. My beloved, God has given ministers for the work of your ministry. He's given the pastors to show the way so that God's people can follow them. Well, Paul, the pastor, tells them in this passage, Brethren, you know, verse 18, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I've been with you at all seasons. Now notice, the Apostle Paul was an example, a model of the admonition that he's about to give them in verse 28, take heed to yourselves. For Paul kept his own heart in communion with God. Now I want you to notice a few ways that he's an example. 
to the people. First, he was an example in terms of his humility. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Now, humility is something that each of us needs. It's not just something that a preacher needs, but a preacher especially needs to guard against pride because he's visible and he gets a number of accolades. You know, people saying that's the best sermon I've ever heard or you really hit it out of the park today, you know, and all of that's always appreciated, but a preacher needs to be careful that it doesn't go to his head. You know, I live with myself, and I know the struggles that I have, and I'm thankful for your encouragement, but when somebody tells me that I'm the best preacher that they've ever heard, I, I need to be careful to check that. Like Spurgeon said, every preacher needs one blind eye and one deaf ear. He needs to see and hear only half of what he sees and hears, whether it's in terms of criticism or praise. Just take it all with a grain of salt. Heard an interesting story about George Whitfield. You know, in the early days of America, colonial America, Whitfield preached up and down the eastern seaboard. In fact, if you've ever noticed right out in front of Advance Auto Supply in Little River, there's a sign, a historical marker there that says, George Whitfield came through here. And yes, indeed, he established an orphanage in Savannah, which is still extant. He preached all the way up in New York and Massachusetts, Boston, and up and down, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. And Whitfield, because he preached in the open air, he was from England. He made 13 trips across the Atlantic to America. 12 of them were round trips. He went back to England, then he'd come back again. The last one, he died of asthma at the age of 57, I think it was, in Exeter, Massachusetts. And he's buried beneath the pulpit of a congregational church in that area. But Whitfield uh, was very popular. In fact, uh, when he would come through preaching, people would come out of the cities. The blacksmiths would lay down their hammer. Merchants would close the doors to their shop, and the farmers would lay aside their implements and come out of the fields, and huge crowds would gather. In fact, Benjamin Franklin was once so skeptical of the report that he heard of the crowd, the number of people that had come to hear Whitfield, that when Whitfield preached in the open air in Philadelphia, Franklin went out to hear him. And Franklin began to step off the crowd around the pulpit or the lectern where Whitfield was preaching, and he calculated in his mind the square footage, and he estimated that between 20 and 25,000 people were there on that occasion listening to George Whitfield preach in the open air without the aid of a microphone or an amplifier. And there was just something about his style. He was, he was very gifted, very talented. He could weave a story together, and he had great rhetorical skills, and he would weep as he preached. I mean, the man was, his heart was in it, and the people were moved by it. He preached not just like the, the old Puritans. The picture is that they would read their sermons, but he preached to the heart, and the people responded, and he was probably more popular than any of the clerics in colonial America. And he received a lot of accolades. I mean, people were very complimentary. Now, the preachers didn't like him that much, <laughs> but the people just loved him and thought that he was, you know, an angel almost. And it could have easily gone to his head. 
But Whitfield had a response to people that would compliment him. When somebody would come up and say, that was the best sermon that I've ever heard, Whitfield would say, I know it. The devil told me that just now as I stepped down from the pulpit. <laughs> That's the way he kept himself humble. Maybe you've heard the story about the preacher, the young man that went up to preach and he was full of himself. He was, you know, self-esteem was coming out the roof and he just thought that he could do this without any problem. And he got in the pulpit and long about uh, 10 minutes into his sermon, his mind just went blank. He lost his train of thought and embarrassed he stepped down, and an older man told him, young man, if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way that you went up. Indeed, humility is vital for the pastor. Paul said, I've served the Lord with all humility of my notice. He knew who he was serving, the Lord, and he's done it with humility of mind. The fact is, dear friends, that every pastor needs this kind of integrity. He needs to remember, as Paul said in Ephesians 3.8, I'm less than the least of all saints. And what a privilege it is to be given this opportunity to proclaim the best message sinners have ever heard. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given. It's a grace that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I am what I am by the grace of God. Not because I'm important, not because I have a higher IQ or a better pedigree or I'm more talented, but he said anything good in me is there by the grace of God. And I am, in fact, the least of the apostles. God help me and every gospel minister to maintain this mindset of humility, to remember that as 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, who makest thee to differ from another? That's a good question. You say, oh, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, my friends, except by the grace of God, you would be, and I would be. Who maketh thee to differ from another, and what hast thou that thou hast not received? And if you have received it, why do you glory as though you received it not? Indeed, humility is a testimony to Paul's integrity. He's an example to the Ephesian elders of what it means to serve the Lord with all humility of mind. And not only that, notice he's an exemplary pastor, secondly, in terms of the motives of his heart. He said, and with many tears. The Apostle Paul had great empathy. In fact, twice in this passage, he mentions his tears. Verse 19b and verse 31 where he says, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, I don't think Paul was a weeper. I don't think he was just emotionally distraught. I don't think that every time he stood up to preach that he couldn't control his emotions, but I do believe that his heart was involved. I do believe he was sincere and he cared enough to shed a tear for the cause of Christ. His motives, my beloved, were honorable. In fact, listen to his statement in verse 33. Now he's defending himself. He is telling, he's reminding them that you know what kind of ministry I've had. You know me. You've seen me. You've seen my humility. You've seen my tears, my genuine concern for the cause of Christ. He says, and you know in verse 33 that I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. 
That is, my motive has been to serve the Lord, not to just get rich. I haven't used you as a means to an end. There's an old saying that of all the demagogues in the world, you know what a demagogue is? A demagogue is somebody that uses his or her position for personal gain. You know, politicians are often accused of demagoguery, using their office to get rich, to pad their own pockets. But the saying is, of all the demagogues in the world, the religious ones are the worst. I believe that. People that use God to prey on people, to prey on old widow women, to prey on the vulnerable. Heard a popular charismatic preacher, heard a statement he made this last week in which he told some other preachers, when a widow gives you her last $5, you take it because you deserve it. You're the man of God and God is rewarding you and showing other people that if you serve him, he will give you a harvest of good things. And he said, I need it for my new airplane I'm about to buy. We know that religious leaders have often used their position for personal gain, whether it's money or power or influence or even personal pleasure. They've taken advantage of other people. Paul was not like that. His motives were sincere. And he said, you know me. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities. On top of his ministry, Paul said, I have taken responsibility for providing for my own necessities. He said, I have showed you all things. I've modeled the message. I've lived as an example how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. Ministers, you need to have a giving ministry, not a taking ministry. A shepherd, a pastor, is on the receiving end of so much, so many kindnesses from the Lord's people. But if we ever get to the point that those kindnesses don't humble us, but we start thinking that we deserve it, that they owe it to us, he says we're at a very dangerous and precarious point because he says the ministry is a servant kind of endeavor. And he says, so laboring, you ought to support the weak. Preacher, you try to help others. You be on the giving end as much as possible. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't it interesting that that comment never appears in the Gospels, but yet the Holy Spirit includes it here in Paul's farewell address in Acts 20. And you've heard that all your life. I have too. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus taught that. He taught it verbally. And the apostle reminds this church at Ephesus now that it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's teaching us here that preachers should do everything that they can to try to help people, whether it's giving them groceries, giving them food. You know, the late elder obeyed Dalima in Tanzania, East Africa, would actually go around to his church members and he would take them groceries. Many of them were malnourished and he took upon himself the responsibility not only of feeding their souls, but of feeding them physically. He cared that much for them. He wanted to help them. He wanted to do what he could, not just to use them for his own personal gain and benefit, but he was invested in trying to care for his sheep, whether their needs were physical or spiritual. The sincerity of motives in a gospel minister is vitally important. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Our exhortation 
That is, when we preached to you, it was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Now, what he means here is I'm not like the religious charlatans. There were hucksters aplenty in that day, snake oil salesmen, that were using their position in order to gain influence and to gain popularity and monetary benefit. But Paul says, when I preached, it was not of deceit. I didn't have ulterior motives, nor of uncleanness. He didn't use his position to prey on the ladies, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Let me say this. Gone are the days when everyone that wears a uniform, now I mean no disrespect to those who wear uniforms, but gone are the days when everyone that wears a military uniform, a law enforcement uniform, a white lab coat, a clergy robe or collar. Gone are the days when we just accept everyone and say that their motives are genuine. My beloved, now I've been credulous and naive long enough, but you know the last several years have taught me that you can't just accept everyone that claims to be an expert as having good and godly motives. Now I'm not trying to encourage you to paranoia. I'm trying to encourage you to be discerning, to understand there are false teachers, and there are people who have selfish motives out there posing to be preachers. And you say, now, that's all we need is a preacher to try to rail on other ministers. I'm just saying, I have great respect for men, even of different traditions, who are genuine, who love the Lord, and are trying to teach His Word, but I have to tell you, dear friends, that I don't accept any of them 100%. My grandmother's sage word of advice years ago, even though it's a little bit crude, is still appropriate. Never swallow anybody whole or you'll have to spit them up again. You say, well, here's a news anchor and he is well-dressed and, and he's articulate, he's his hair's combed, he's handsome, or she is lovely and well-dressed, and I think that whatever they say must be the truth. Just because somebody has the bully pulpit doesn't mean that their hearts are right before God. It's important to screen everything you and I hear by the Word of God. Now, once you've made a judgment that somebody's genuine, then of course you can let your guard down a little bit. But even then, you know, when I preach, you need to Test everything by the scriptures. Be like those noble Bereans who searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Because I'm not infallible. I'm not divinely inspired. God doesn't just funnel it in and everything I say is gospel truth. As long as I teach this book, then you can trust it. But understand that every human being, whether he's a clergyman or a politician, somebody that holds a reputable office or a physician that wears a lab coat or an anchor person on television, understand, my friends, that everyone is not genuine in his or her motives. Paul says, we were allowed by God to be put in trust with the gospel. How did he see his ministry? As a sacred trust. Something that didn't belong to him. It wasn't a personal right. And he said, therefore, we speak not as pleasing men, but God which tries our hearts. I'm telling you, preachers are awfully afraid today in many respects to tell the truth because they're afraid they're going to lose members. They're afraid they're not going to be popular. 
There's an epidemic, I believe, of pulpits in America in which the preachers have catered to the demands of the crowd to speak smooth things. They're trying to tickle the itching ears. And in days like that, we need shepherds who are people of integrity, people of conviction, and people of courage, people of conscience, who will preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I want to be that kind of a pastor. Paul was that. He said, brethren, you know that I held back nothing that was profitable unto you. His motives were genuine. You say, well, what if people, what if you lose your reputation? I love a quote by the late John Owen. John Owen said, as for myself, my name, my reputation, and esteem with the churches of God. I commit the whole concern of them to him whose presence through grace I have hitherto enjoyed and whose promise I lean upon that he will never leave me nor forsake me. That's a healthy mindset for a pastor. You know, John the Baptist, when his followers came to him and said, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, the same baptizeth. That is, remember that Jesus character that you baptized? Now, he and his followers are winning converts and they're stealing your crowd. This is John chapter 3, verse 26. You know what most preachers think when somebody steals their crowd? They think, you know, both guns are blazing. I'm coming out to protect what belongs to me. But notice John the Baptist says they don't belong to me. Listen to how he responds. John three twenty-six. Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it were given to him from heaven. He didn't assume that his ministry was a personal right. It was a gift from God. It was given to him from heaven. Yea, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent to bear witness before him. Remember, I've told you all along that I'm not the Christ. He that hath the bride's the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, the best man at the wedding, he's not the, to be the focus of attention anyway. John the Baptist is simply saying, I'm the best man, but he's, Jesus is the bridegroom. He says he, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. Lori and the girls gave me a, an hourglass for Father's Day this year. I've always wanted one. I've had little ones, you know, that... You could turn over and turn over, but they gave me a life-size hourglass. I mean, it's big. I mean, it's good size. And I've had a ball just flipping it every hour. <laughs> now, I, I did it for a while, for a, a day or so. You know, I flipped it regularly, but I haven't in a while. But an hourglass. You know what happens when, as you flip the hourglass? The sand in the top decreases. The sand in the bottom increases. As this goes down, this goes up. He must increase and I must decrease. Like the old-fashioned hourglass. Notice Paul was not only exemplary in his motives and in his attitude of humility, but he was a faithful pastor in terms of his teaching. He had a diligent work ethic. Verse 20 says, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. He preached publicly. We know in the 19th chapter, the previous chapter of Acts, he taught daily in the school of Tyrannus. 
publicly, and he also taught in the Jewish synagogue, but he also spoke not only publicly, but privately from house to house. His preaching was on a personal basis as well as in a congregational setting like this this morning. His faith was real. In other words, not just on Sunday mornings, but every opportunity he had to interact with the Lord's people. He was using it to try to redirect their minds, their hearts, to God and his word and his truth. Paul was faithful in terms of his work ethic. I mean, he taught them publicly, privately. He taught them at all hours of the day and night. In fact, in the earlier in this 20th chapter, he's been preaching and he preached till midnight. And by the way, the word preach in that passage is from the Greek word that gives us the English word dialogue. And the idea is that he was teaching and they had questions and he was answering questions and that went on till midnight and a fellow named Eutychus fell asleep by the window and fell out the window and they took him up as dead. Isn't it interesting the only time Eutychus ever got his name mentioned in the Bible is when he went to sleep in church. That's when you pray the prayer of the Pharisee, thank you Lord I'm not as other men are. But uh, beware if you get sleepy in church that that could happen to you. <laughs> well, anyway... Paul is faithful to preach and not only to keep preaching wherever he has opportunity, publicly, privately, but he's thorough in terms of his commitment to the gospel message. Notice he calls the gospel that he preached in verse 24 the gospel of the grace of God. I love that. We preach the gospel of the grace of God. What's the focal point of the good news? It's God's grace. And what is God's grace? It's his kindness to the undeserving and, in fact, the hell-deserving. People who deserve the very opposite of his kindness, they deserve his wrath, his judgment. Yet God has blessed those who have not earned or merited his blessing. Grace is divine favor bestowed upon those who've earned the very opposite. That's why grace is called unmerited favor. You didn't merit it. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. God blesses you in spite of yourself. And my beloved, that's my story. Is it yours? Has God blessed you in spite of yourself? Paul preached the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25, he calls it the gospel of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That's God's new society. His new order. It's a monarchy. He's the king. And he reigns and his authority is paramount, and his provision for his, the subjects of his kingdom is plentiful. Yes, my friends, the gospel of the kingdom. Do you know what the church is? It's the kingdom of God in visible expression. One day, the whole triumphant kingdom, the invisible church, will be gathered in heaven. But right now, believers gather week in and week out, to try to bow the knee to King Jesus and say, He is Lord of all. The gospel we preach is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then the response to the gospel in verse 21, he says, I've taught you publicly, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul preached repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. My beloved, repentance is not a popular emphasis today. People want self-help. They want their ego to be coddled. They want to be told that they are VIPs. But Paul preached that our biggest problem is sin. 
and the biggest need in our life is to turn from it. You know, we need repentance today. There's not a person in this building that doesn't need to repent, self-included. I need to turn every day from my bad attitudes. I need to turn every day from my worldliness. Every day I need to make an about face. That's what the word repent means. The etymology of the Greek word means literally make an about face. You've been going this direction, turn 180 degrees and go this direction. You know what gospel preaching should encourage us to do? When we leave here, we should want to be better. We should want to do better, live closer to God, control our attitudes better. You know, have you had trouble with your temper lately? Have you had trouble with your focus? Are, are there stresses in your home? Are there problems in your relationships? Could you be more Christ-like? Could you be more humble? Could you be more consistent in reading the scriptures and trying to pray and keep your heart tender toward God? Repentance is a daily necessity in the lives of God's people. Repentance toward God and faith. Now, once you turn from something, you need something to turn to. And instead of following my own way, going my own path, now I'm going to turn from that, and now I'm going to trust Jesus, put my faith in Jesus Christ. You see, that's the proper response to the gospel of grace. We preach the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and he did it. God, in his grace, has rescued us. And my beloved, in response to that, we should live lives of obedience and faithfulness to him, turning from our sins and being more committed to trust him and to serve him, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions twice in this passage, he didn't shrink from preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. Verse 20, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. Oh, Lord, help me to say that one day. And verse Number 27, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. By the way, that's one reason that I preach sequentially at times through books of the Bible or through a passage or through subjects. You know, I would love to be a populist preacher. I mean, I would like that, to be able to have a prepackaged 20-minute sermon to come in and make people feel good. But you know, if I had to sustain that week in and week out in a long pastoral ministry, I'm not spiritually minded enough to do it, I have to tell you. God, the Holy Spirit, gave us this book, and I think that it's not wrong for us to read through it, to preach through it, to study consecutive passages from time to time. I try to preach the whole counsel of God. And when you do it that way, you're forced to address subjects that you wouldn't ordinarily choose. You know, I would love to preach from the 23rd Psalm and the 8th chapter of Romans and the 1st chapter of Ephesians every time I got up. But I'll tell you, there are other things that you need to be reminded of, need to be taught. We need a well-balanced diet of spiritual food, don't we? You know what people that don't get a well-balanced diet do on a physical level? They, they develop anemias, they develop problems with their health. But you know, when you get a well-balanced diet, I mean, all the food groups and there are all the minerals and vitamins, it promotes health. And so the whole counsel of God promotes the health of the church. Therefore, Paul says, I have a clear conscience, verse 26. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I'm pure from the blood of all men. Oh, my beloved, that is a wonderful thing to be able to say. 
What an inspiration was Paul's example as a shepherd to the elders at Ephesus. Indeed, take heed to yourself. Paul himself modeled that important directive. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Brother Mike, I feel like I need a shepherd. I'm a little sheep. I'm vulnerable to the predators. Some there are grievous wolves around me. There are so many threats and dangers to my spiritual health. I need to be reminded of the truth of God. Paul showed us what that looks like. That's the value of church life. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn this morning or thumb my own lapels and say I'm important, but I'm saying that God has given us pastors according to his heart that can preach the whole counsel of God to us week in and week out to renew our minds, to keep our hearts right, we need each other, we need the truth, we need the church, which is a pastoral institution. It's a place for God's sheep to be able to safely graze because the heavenly shepherd is guarding them well. Indeed, my beloved, if you're not in the fold, if you haven't publicly confessed Christ and joined the church and said, I want to be a part of this flock, there is a blessing to be had that you're missing. I would encourage you, my friend, not to live on the other side of the fence and look at the green pasture and say, oh, it's a lovely place, but I urge you to come into the fold and be sheltered in the fold. Let him, as the song says, with his sheep securely fold you, bring you in as one of us. I believe you'll find a blessing, my friends, in that.